Hi everyone, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terullo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is Shiloh's head leader, main pastor, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about transformation through Christ by taking another look at Paul's story. So Pastor Dan, I want to jump right into a comment that you made during Sunday's message. You said that some people have taken a violent approach to us as Christians because of things that have happened in the past. And I just wanted to thank you for addressing this because honestly, most of the time I choose just not to think about church-induced trauma. I just love coming to Shiloh and I live in this happy bubble of beautiful people (laughs) and fun and food and friendship and I hear the good news and it's great. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately... That is not the reality of the world that we live in. There are many people out there who have been hurt by something a Christian has said or done to them or the way that they've been treated. And, you know, especially here, there's been the splitting of denominations and not necessarily here at Shiloh, but in our community, there has been some foul play involved with this in different places. Not here, but... Right, right. Um, and so there's there's just been uh, kind of like this disgruntled nature um, in in some people and in some communities. And I actually met an older gentleman. He was in one of the neighboring towns of ours just last week. He had been, quote, pushed out of his home church because they switched over completely to like a contemporary style of worship. So they totally went away from the traditional style, which is what he had known as church his entire life. Mm-hmm. And they kind of did it unapologetically from my interpretation of his story. I'm just like, man, that hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, he just felt like he got kicked out of his his home church, the people who he knew, his family. Yeah. And, you know, knowing that I was in ministry, he started making these like vast assumptions about what I stand for and about what I teach in the church. And I hadn't even shared anything about, you know, what, what I teach, what I do, things like that. And he, he just started saying these things that, ooh, kind of cut, kind of mm-hmm. cut a little, a little deep. And I could tell that there was some, some trauma there, right? Yeah. And so, honestly, he's not wrong. He's not wrong for feeling how he does. He feels kicked out. He feels rejected. He feels hurt by the church. You know, and I just wanted to take these first few minutes and address that and say, whoever's listening, if you're someone who's been hurt by the church in the past, or, you know, maybe you're going through it right now, I just wanted to say, sorry. Like, yeah. that that's people. That's not God. That's people. Yep. And the truth is, God is love. He is kindness and mercy and grace, and he's the light in the darkness. And as Christians, we strive to be more like Jesus every single day, and yet we fall short because we're human. We act on our feelings. We can be divisive. We have been more committed to our ideology than the truth. We've betrayed people, and we can throw tantrums, just like that mob that formed around Paul in the story from Acts that we heard on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And that's not God. 
we've hurt people, we've made people uncomfortable. And this is something I think is imperative to recognize in ourselves so that when we connect with people and share our faith, we can approach them from a place of empathetic love and grace mm -hmm. and not just total positivity in an overwhelming way. And so you asked us a very pointed question in the sermon. You said, are you afraid to share your faith with your faith with other people? You might be afraid to share your faith with someone too, but are you afraid to share your faith with other people? And if so, why? And, you know, after that story with Paul, you know, I'm a little bit more afraid than I was before, if mm -hmm. we're being honest, right? That's not a super inspirational story about sharing your testimony, <laughs> but, but, we know that Jesus is with us through it because he tells us so. Yes. Right? And so, Paul, if, if you're not caught up and you didn't come to church, whatever, I'll just tell you the little background here. Paul, uh, he was Saul and he, you know, was pursuing Christians and being very hostile towards them. And he was transformed through an encounter with Christ. And so, Paul is then in, is it Jerusalem? Yes. Yes. So, Paul is in Jerusalem and he shares this transformation with a crowd of people. It's just a crowd at first, you know. He's like, hey, this is what happened to me. I pursued and, and I killed these Christians and Stephen's blood is on my hands. And now I met Jesus and I've been transformed. And now, you know, I'm, I'm all in, right? He's right, like, he's right. totally in. And he's totally intense about being all in and rightfully so. I mean... <laughs> God literally booped him upside the head and made him blind for a couple days and then yep. gave him his sight back. And he's like, whoa. So he's taken aback and he's sharing his story. And immediately this crowd turns into a mob and they're like, we must kill him. He's yeah. no longer fit for this planet. Yikes. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about sharing my faith, my typical fear is that it's going to be that I'm going to share it with someone who's hostile towards Christians. Mm -hmm. Like they have this background of being hurt by the church and maybe they've formed all of these like specific pointed questions and they just like have these bullet points ready to go in the front of their brain and they're just attacking my faith. Mm -hmm. I have this fear. Like when I go to share my faith with people, sometimes not always. And then I feel inadequate and I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think I can answer all of those questions. And so then I kind of shy away and I do that lukewarm thing, right? That we talked about. <laughs> and so what, what would you say to someone like me? Because I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, but what would you say to someone like me? How, how would you alleviate my fears in going about this? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot in what you just said and I think the most direct answer to your question is if if you're afraid to share your faith because of the fear that you have of not being able to adequately defend your faith, um, if you're afraid because you have justifiable concerns about people's hostile reaction, I get that. And I... I think that we have a, a more uh, pressing problem that we're not really aware of, and I, I don't suspect that you have this problem too much, but um, 
your faith should be something you find difficult to suppress. You know how I like to say in church on Sunday, we worship God because we just can't help it. Mm -hmm. The idea behind that is, is that that should be at the heart of worship. And, and it's not like I'm trying to tell people they're doing it wrong or anything. I'm trying to present them with a perspective on worship that a lot of them don't bring to worship. And it goes back to the problem with Christians that so many non-Christians or former Christians or, to be honest, more former church people. Mm -hmm. Lots of people attend church and then go away mad at church people. And as you rightly said, that's not God's fault. And that isn't the fault of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And the reality is a lot of people don't have a faith as much as they have a religion. And so when you're sharing your faith, that's real. And it most often reveals itself in moments when faith is all you've got. And so some of the most authentic testimonies you can give are those moments when uh, you have nothing else to fall back on. So I don't know, you were talking to this fellow the other day who had a very negative experience. And I think that we could role play that a little bit maybe to, to try to help illustrate the point. Maybe, maybe what you would say to him is, is, I hear that you've had a really negative experience with the people of your church. And then you could say, you know, because he'd probably say, yes, I did. Mm -hmm. And then you could say, but that experience doesn't have much to do with God, does it? No, not really. It's those people. But they claim to represent God, and then they go and do a thing like this. Yeah, I can see how that would make you feel pretty bad about church people. You know, and I can see how that would make you wonder why God would allow them to misrepresent God that way. Well, that begins to make you think about what your idea of God is, you know, have you ever thought about who God is to you and what God is up to and how that, you know, affects your life? To what extent do you represent God? Mm. How well do you represent God? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm just asking the honest question. To what extent would someone look to me as an example of what God's all about? Because we all have that responsibility if we claim to be Christians or Jews, you know. Um, so how would I equip you to deal with hostility towards Christians? I think the most important thing you can do is understand that whatever hostility you experience is almost cert certainly a response to some negative experience they've had with church people. Hmm. And I tell you, I've seen it all. I've heard it all, you know? So what would you, what would you say to somebody whose experience 
with church people has been really negative? That's the first question. What would you say? You already sort of said it, but... I would say, can you repeat the question? (laughs) (laughs) What would you say, Adrian, to somebody that you knew was hostile because they'd have negative experiences with church people? Well, I guess I would say kind of what I just said. I would start with, well, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Mm -hmm. That's people. That's not God. Yeah. And we're not called to create harm. Right. Right. We're called to be peaceful and loving and caring. And that stinks. You know, Mm -hmm. I just kind of affirm how they're feeling Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, that, that, that's not, that's not right, but that's not how it is everywhere. That's not what it has to be. And in my life, I've been fortunate enough to find a community of good Christians who, who love me, even when, even when I run my mouth a little bit more than I probably should, they meet me with grace mm-hmm. and it feels so good to receive grace. And I think that is a responsibility and, and, a, a, a blessing, I guess, of, of Christianity is that we have received that grace from God. And so when you receive that grace from a human, it feels so good. And it introduces you a little bit, a tiny bit to the grace that we have from God. Yeah. And so my recommendation would be to find a place where you can find grace. Mm -hmm. That's kind of (laughs) catchy. I didn't even plan that. Find a place where you found grace. Mm -hmm. And there's where Christ is. I, uh, I used to serve at a church that's name was Grace, Grace Church. And I would say to people all the time who were not acting very graciously, you know, you have the extra burden of having grace in the name of your church. So you better act the part. Mm. Grace is the business we are in. Yeah. Um. I think one of my most quotable moments from last Sunday was that the Christian superpower is grace. Yes. Because it's the one thing the devil can't do. I have just probably a lot of things he can't do, but one weapon you have that is more powerful than the enemy of God is grace. Mm -hmm. And it is the devil's undoing every time it happens. So being in the grace business is is what's essentially missing. I think one of the sad things about people in in so many Christian church settings is that they've claimed Christ and actually sort of taken his grace for granted. So they're not really honoring the cost of his salvation and the grace that came in it. And they're not living that grace because they don't understand, you know, like like the most foundational thing every Christian should understand is that God, because of grace, gave you and me something that cost him the most that, it, that God could pay for something. 
I mean, try to imagine the creator, supreme being of all that is, was, and ever will be, and then imagine this creator paying the most expensive price he could pay, God can pay. I mean, it's a little hard to put your mind around that, but but you say, well, you know, what would be the most expensive gift Warren Buffett could give versus what's the most expensive gift I could give? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I took every penny I had in savings and I bought a gift with it, it wouldn't be a terribly expensive gift, but it would be the most expensive gift I could give. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett could spend a zillion dollars more than I can, and it would be a very expensive gift, but it would still be the most expensive gift he could give. Mm -hmm. God, on the other hand, has given the most expensive gift God can give, and he gave it in exchange for you. He gave it in exchange for me. And he did it for the sake of his grace. He did it because he loves you, wants you to be with him eternally, and wants you to be cleansed from sin. And he was willing to pay the highest price God can pay so that that could happen. And all of that without any certainty that you would accept the gift. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you accept the gift, that should be at the very depth of your being for the rest of your existence. So that when you encounter other people, you see them as people for whom God is willing to pay that same price. And that makes them of sacred value to God which means you owe them that, mm. all things being equal. And I find that in church, there isn't enough grace usually. So why is that? Well, because maybe somebody listening to this is, is saying, you know, I, I can imagine a couple of different kinds of people listening to this. Church people who have lived a life... Uh, within the context of their church and everything and, and wondering if I'm saying that they've been doing it wrong. I'm not saying you've been doing it wrong. I'm saying that you must remain conscious, that is, aware always of Christ your Savior and Christ your Lord. Now, how you want to interpret that, how you want to word that, I, I, I'll leave that to you. But but as soon as religion takes the place of faith, and faith is a word I'm using in this context to describe that constant awareness that Christ is your Savior and Christ is your Lord. So when we're talking about religion or social activity in the name of church, well, those are things that can very easily take precedence over the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and the salvation that was given to you because of grace. And I just think that, that you know, if you ask somebody who has lost a loved one, especially in an untimely way, you know, they were young, 
you know, the peak of your relationship or something, you know, or it was a child or whatever. If you ask them, they'll say they've learned to live with the pain, but they have never stopped hurting and they never spend a day without thinking about their loss. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the same but different. You should never have a day when you don't think regularly about how much God loves you, the price God was willing to pay to save you for all eternity, and his desire to walk with you through everything you do and experience. You know, like, like that, that is being a fully awake Christian. Now, I think a person who is in that mindset is far less likely to do hurtful things that will uh, misrepresent Christ to a person who doesn't know him. I'm really going out on a limb here because, like I said, lots of people go to church, lots of people are in church all their lives, and they can articulate these principles. But to the to what extent have they devoted themselves to obedience to Christ? To what extent have they devoted themselves to sanctification, which is a big $10 word we use in church, to describe striving for holiness or striving for a nearness to God that supersedes or exceeds what I've already accomplished. So the goal is that with every day of my life, I am closer to the heart and mind of God. That's sanctification. So I know I've probably gone off on a tangent on you here, but it, it's, it's like you asked me, how do you respond to people who have had negative experiences with church people? You said it really well. Well, that's not God. That's people. Mm-hmm. And the church is ordained by God, and it's made up by people. And so God's aware, God's very aware that the church is made up of flawed people. Right. And God is not ashamed of his flawed people as long as they have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Because in effect, he sees nothing to be ashamed of when he looks at you because he sees his son or daughter. And so this, I mean, this is just heavy theology, but it's all to make the point that if I were trying to teach a Christian how to respond to hostility towards Christianity, it's what you understand in you that is going to inform how you respond to that person. I argue that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you see them with compassion. And that compassion informs how you respond to them. And much of what they go away from the conversation with will depend on the warmth in your eyes. The, the your demeanor they'll walk away thinking you know that person wasn't defensive that person wasn't offensive they didn't come after me and, and tell me I'm going to hell because of what I think or don't think or whatever they didn't attack me they didn't they didn't try to fight me off with a bunch of arguments there are people out there who would say I should be teaching you how to do apologetics which is the art of defending your faith, or anything for that matter. But apologetics 
is an art or a skill that you can develop where you're really good at responding to people's questions mm. about the thing you believe wholeheartedly. Well, I actually think that's a pretty helpful skill, but I think it comes down to what you intend to do. And the vast majority of people are not called to apologetics. Everyone is called to share their faith. Everyone is called to stand by their commitment to Christ and to live as though their love for Christ is real. So if you're not called to apologetics, then you might say to a person who's arguing against Christianity, I don't really know the answer to that question, but it doesn't change how I feel about Christ. It doesn't change the absolute certainty that I feel in my bones that I will be with him when I die and that he will return one day because I just know I have experienced his presence in a way that is so real for me that I can only hope that you should be so blessed as to have that experience too. You aren't trying to convince them to change their mind. You're not convincing them that whatever it is they've said against Christianity isn't true. You're not doing anything like that. You're sharing your faith. You know, you're saying, nevertheless, I love him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And now, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Right. I'm saying, you know, I'm really not sure how to answer your question there, but here's what I do know, and here's what I found. And you're not going to change my mind, but like just here, here is my take on it. Take well, it it's classic it. Christianity, and people who watch The Chosen maybe even got the T-shirt <laughs> that says, all I know is my life was like this, and then I met him, and now my life is like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the answer that can't be refuted. Yeah. Because only you can say with certainty that your life was one way before you met Jesus, and now it's another way because you met Jesus. And the thing that changed everything was him. Mm-hmm. See, nobody could take that from you. Now, they can say, I think he was a historical figure, but I don't think he was the son of God. And you can say, okay, you're entitled to think that. I don't think that. Well, why don't you think that? Well, my scripture reading And uh, the faith that I've witnessed in the people I look up to in my Christian community has convinced me that he is the son of God, you know. And I guess if you really want a better argument for that than I can give you, there are people who are better equipped than I am. Yeah. You know, see, too many of us get on the defensive and we think that if we do this wrong, that somehow something really bad's going to happen. You know, the beautiful thing, I call it the eternal perspective, okay? The, the eternal perspective is look at this as though you're going to live forever, because you are. And then ask yourself, how much help does God really need from you with anything? So you're talking to somebody who's hostile towards Christianity because they've had negative experiences with Christians. Mm-hmm. You can say what you need to say, and you can say it with the warmth and the love and the compassion and the sincerity that is natural in you because you're a born-again Christian. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, no problem. God's got this. 
He's eternal. Mm-hmm. You know, have an eternal perspective. Most people are afraid to share their faith. Most people are afraid to do most things because they fear that somehow failure is going to cause them to be rejected, derided. I mean, you know what's really funny is is before we had a word for it, most people were afraid of being canceled. Yeah. (laughs) You know, people are always afraid of being canceled and, and... even that I find kind of amusing because really, um, if if people set out to cancel me, um, then uh, what does that even mean? You know, yes, they can destroy a person's reputation and end their career, but I would argue that the people who are most cancelable are people who are trying to win the approval of the ones doing the canceling. In other words, you look at a celebrity, you look at a public figure, they want and need the approval of a certain body of people who have declared them not worthy of living on this planet, and so they're going to cancel them. Well, I got news for you. I don't know anybody whose cancellation is going to make a big difference in my life. Right. (laughs) Now, if this whole congregation cancels me and in effect says, we don't want you to be a pastor anymore and you're fired, well, then the question is, is did I have it coming? Yeah. Because I did something that was, you know, worthy of that conclusion. But, but I guess what I'm saying is, is in, the whole, in the whole scheme of things, most of the things we're afraid to do have to do with unrealistic fears or uh, imagined outcomes that are far worse than reality. Um, in fact, I was doing, as you know, I'm doing some online study for psychological counseling, Christian counseling, that kind of stuff. And and this one, one lecturer said that he spends a lot of time with college students. Hmm. And he gave this story as an example of what he does with these college students. He said, you know, a young man comes in and he says, I'm afraid to ask girls to go out on a date, but I feel like I really don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. And here's college with all these beautiful young women, these, these single young women, maybe many of them are looking for a life companion too. And, and I just don't know what to do because I feel like I'm missing my opportunity. And the psychologist says, well, what are you afraid of? And he says, I'm afraid of, you know, being rejected. And he says, well, what happens if you get rejected? Do they put it in the school paper? Do they put it on the national news? Does the, does the woman who reject you, rejected you go around carrying a banner saying, I've rejected him? I mean, really, what is it that you're afraid of? What would be the worst thing that could happen if you asked a girl out and she said, no, I don't think so? You'd be disappointed probably because you liked her and thought she would be a great person to spend time with. Mm-hmm. And so this, this lecturer says, so here's what I do. I tell them to go find a young woman on campus who is way out of their league and ask her for a date and just get it over with. Just, just go ahead and get rejected and, and just get it over with. You know, because once you've survived that rejection, you realize that it's really not as bad as you imagined it to be. Yeah. I thought that's that's really good. Now, please, if you're listening to this, don't don't, you know, write in or call me or anything to talk about that. That's another guy's story. That's not my story. Yeah. 
I don't know, you know, how you can tell them what you think of the way they counsel these young men. But I think that the most important point to walk away from that is, is what have you got to lose, really? If you've been given eternal life through Christ, then even death doesn't separate you from God and doesn't separate you from, well, your existence. Now, I'm not excited about the idea of dying, and, and, and I guess I feel like there's a lot going on in my life right now that I'd like to see through. But inevitably, we all die, and then we begin, you know, in our old age to start thinking about eternity as a concept that has more to do with where we're going than where we are. And, and you know, our whole perspective on that is is wrong because what Christ wants you to understand when he says I came so that you could have abundant life what did he mean by that I've heard people say that he surely must have meant that we should be wealthy that we should be prosperous that we should be all that I don't think that's what he meant and and by the way I don't think that he was trying in any other way to say that you shouldn't enjoy the things that you work hard to attain as long as they don't become more important to you than me, Christ. Mm -hmm. What he meant when he said he wanted you to have abundant life is, is that you could live your life in freedom and joy. Well, what could grant you more freedom and joy in the way you live your life than knowing that even when your body ceases to function, your spirit lives for eternity, and that one day you will have a body that never ceases to function? that doesn't get old, that doesn't have all the scars all over it, that doesn't have all of the sickness and everything else, that, that there's this promise of something to come that makes our lives full of hope, even in the darkest of times. Now, if that is the source of your faith, or I should say the source of your joy, your faith is the source of that belief, like like you've put your faith in Christ and therefore you've put your faith in his program. His program of salvation, eternal life. You will be with me in paradise today. You, you put your faith in his promise that he's coming again. You put your faith in the fact that he plans on having a new heavens and a new earth and all of that. You put your faith in all of that and that faith informs your joy but it should also inform your courage because you can say to somebody, well, this is what I believe and I wish that it could be as fulfilling for you and I wish you could believe these things too and meet Christ wherever you need to meet him. I wish all of this for you. And if they reject you, you just say, well, God bless you and move on with your life because it doesn't all depend on you. Yeah. You know, because it's not your fault if they still aren't convinced, you know. And, and I think that bringing it back to where you started, I have often apologized for the behavior of Christians, often. From the time you started talking, I was thinking about a story. This incident happened when I was serving in another community about 15 years ago. A young man took his own life. And his grandmother went to my church and she said, you know, his parents aren't church people. They don't have much good to say about church people. 
but I've asked them to let you take care of the uh, funeral service and everything. And they've said that on one condition, if they can meet you first. And I said, okay, no problem. So I went with grandma and we went over to their house and we sat at their kitchen table and, you know, I'm sitting in the house where this young man took his own life. Mm. I'm sitting at the table with the family that he sat at that same table and ate meals with them just a day or two before. And they, I can't remember how the conversation went precisely, but they asked me, they said, well, you know, what do you think? Do you think he's in heaven or hell? And I said, well, if you're asking me if I think that because he took his own life, he's in hell, the answer is no. I do not think that because he took his own life, he's in hell. Mm -hmm. You can rest assured that that thought has never crossed my mind. What I think is that he was sick and he died from his sickness and God has probably never condemned anybody for getting sick and dying from their sickness. I'm pretty sure that God has never punished a person sending them to hell because they got sick and they died from their sickness. Yeah. Because mental illness is sickness and it's sickness that sometimes leads to death, just like cancer and COVID and flu and all kinds of other and infections, you know, heck, if you don't treat uh, an abscessed tooth just right, you could die from it. And whoever thought of having a toothache that killed you. So the point is, is lots of things can kill you, even things you don't expect to kill you. Mm. Does God punish you because you didn't take your abscessed tooth seriously? Does God punish you because you just didn't know how sick you were and then it was too late? Does God punish you because you didn't have access to, this, to the uh, health care that you needed, even mental health care? You know, I don't believe it. And then I looked these folks right in the eyes and I said, look, I'm going to tell you something. Historically, the church has done a horrible job of responding to suicide. And I'm really sorry about that. Because what I'm saying to you makes more sense to me than anything I've ever heard church people say negatively about such things. Nothing historically that the church has taught about suicide makes any sense to me. Nothing modern Christians can say about suicide that condemns the one who died from mental illness makes any sense to me. So all I can say is, is I'm sorry that there are people out there who cause so much pain because I don't know why they're so sure that there's something good about interpreting God that way. The church is a place that God ordained, but it's full of broken people. And when I talk to religious leaders, pastors, that sort of thing, 
Sometimes I hear them complaining about their church people and all their idiosyncrasies and their unrighteousness and their self-righteousness and their sanctimony and all of that. And I think, yeah, you're right. You know, there's a lot of messed up people who go to church, but there are a lot of sick people that go to hospitals and the doctors don't complain about that. Yeah. And so we, the believers, the faithful born-again Christians, we're wounded healers. We're, we're walking wounded ourselves. We are coming alongside each other in the midst of our pain and our suffering. And even in our brokenness that causes us to behave badly. So that I can say to you, the other day, I was a real smart aleck and I wasn't very sensitive. And what I said wounded you. And I'm really sorry for that. Now let's keep pursuing Christ together. Because that's the truth about who the people of God are. And it's the ones who live with this weird sort of denial where they think that being a church attender puts them above other people. Well, you know, they've just got a real problem with classism and they need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. There was a story that I thought of when you were talking earlier that was uh, parallel in my mind to the one I just told you. And it was about a person I met when I first came to this church, and I only met the person once. And then they just weren't around anymore, and I don't know why. And I can't really say that it had anything to do with me because they were gone before I ever really got started. But I met them. And it was a person of a uh, minority race in this community. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, I read an article in the paper about, you know, does racism exist in Jasper? And this person was interviewed because I remembered the name of the person. And the person named this church and how they'd had an experience here that was really off-putting for them. Oh. I'm very interested because this is all before I became pastor. And they just said that there was a person here that, that uh, you know, was an older person who had been a member of the church for a long time who made the comment to this, this, this one that I'm talking about who was cited in the article. This, this, this older lady said to that person, well, I wish my husband could have met you. He would have liked you. And there was something about the way she said it that this person knew that, oh, no, I take it back. In the article, she said that the person said, my husband never liked black people, but he would have liked you. Oh. <laughs> and so for this black person, this, this African-American person, the, the gist of the account was, is so basically... I'm by default not an acceptable person in your mind, but since I've proven myself to be exceptional, you've decided to give me a pass. And oh, by the way, you're a saint of this church and a member of this congregation in good standing. And I'm really struggling with that. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and you know what? I'm, I'm like, I'm right there with you, ma'am. I, I, I'm right there with you when you describe the negative feelings you have by that experience. And all I can say is, is surely you also saw an older person pretty set in their ways who had grown up in a certain way, who meant well, but was ignorant and, and, and inarticulate 
but wasn't a bad person any more than I have been because of my career and my many activities that make up my story. I've been in many neighborhoods where I was the only white person around and I was experiencing a certain certain kind of racism too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I had to say to myself, this is just an older person or not always an older person, but but I had to recognize the humanity of the person I was talking to and not take it too personally. And I'm not sure why that story popped into my mind a few minutes ago, but my my point is is that I think as Christians born again in the Holy Spirit, because that's a really important factor, mm-hmm. we need to recognize that there is a spirit within us that inspires our compassion, our grace, inspires our souls to be in resonance or harmony with the soul of God, the heart and mind of God, which is the Holy Spirit, the Logos. And there's a part of us that is thoroughly human, just like our Lord. I mean, I've never really thought of it this way because we're not divine sons and daughters of God in the same way that Jesus is. And yet he's saying through him, God sees us that way. Mm-hmm. So we're fully human, but we've been infused with the divine. And so like Jesus, we're having a thoroughly human experience, but we're also learning how to have a divine experience of life. And the divine sees with such incredible compassion. Mm -hmm. And so you have to see the humanity. You have to see the woundedness. You have to see the brokenness. You have to see the sorrow and the joy, and you have to see them as products of their environment and, and their, their uh, uh, DNA. You, know? I mean, you have to look at this person and see the whole person as best you can, and then err on the side of grace, because the church does hurt people on a regular basis because a lot of hurt people go to church, you know? And, and uh, hurt people have a tendency to hurt people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the reason we need to be in Christian community, the reason there's really no such thing as a lone wolf Christian, is because we shape each other, and we offset each other's weaknesses, and we enhance each other's strengths. So as a body of Christ within the body of Christ, we are people who together can nurture and minister to hurt, wounded people, even amidst our hurt. And it doesn't, so really it boils down, I was writing something for the newsletter this morning that where I just said, you know, don't assume I have all the answers just because I'm inviting you to let me help you along the discipleship pathway. I don't have all the answers. I just want to help you. And there are lots of people who can help you through something that they don't know how to fix either. (laughs) You know? I mean, I can help you work on your car, but it might be just a matter of holding the wrench or the light for you while you, you know, experiment trying to figure out where the loose gizmo is. I mean, so we have to be willing to see each other as both leaders and followers and we have to see each other as wounded healers you know we have to be willing to experiment 
with relationships within the body of Christ that are complex, but not unattainable. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, anyway. see the whole person, see the woundedness, and yet be compassionate and have grace for them. You're going to laugh when I say this, but do you know what it sounds like I'm saying again? What? Feel, felt, felt found. found. Yep. I thought that when you were talking earlier about the hostility, I can understand how you feel that way and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, because I've felt that way too. Maybe not about the same thing, but daggone it, there have been times when I have been really angry because. I, you know, another one of the things I took away from these lectures I've been listening to for the psychology and Christian counseling, one of the things I took away from it is, is that most wounded people are people who didn't get something that they were pretty sure they should have gotten from somebody. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, sometimes we expect things from people we shouldn't expect from them. And I would say, especially as a pastor, I can tell you that a lot of harm is done because people have unrealistic expectations. And so part of what we do in counseling and part of what we do in leadership is, is help people to have realistic expectations. And not only about circumstances, but about each other. So we sort of address that because I was saying, you know, if, you, if you're afraid to share your faith, it's probably because you have unrealistic expectations, Sure. So you have to find a way to get a frame of reference that is real. And then you say it as not being nearly as frightening as it seemed. So having realistic expectations is a really critical part of good psychological health, good spiritual health. But the flip side of that is sometimes you don't get what you really do deserve. And for many, many people, their psychological problems stem from the fact that a parent was supposed to love them, was supposed to give them everything good parents give, and they didn't. And God's answer is, you're right. They didn't. You know? Why didn't they? Because they weren't healthy. So I was raised by an unhealthy parent, and that's why I didn't get what I needed from that parent. Yeah, pretty much. Now what are you going to do with that? I mean... Because that's what, like, like, almost everybody in life has a story like that. Well, what happens more often than not with wounded Christians or wounded church people is that they went to the church looking for something that they had a right to expect from the church, but the church disappointed them. And it could be because the church was sick or the person in the church that they encountered was sick. Like the story I told about the sort of subtle racism. Mm -hmm. That person wasn't evil, but they weren't equipped to respond to the situation in a healthy, positive way. And so to make that situation work depended on a lot of factors that just didn't come together in that moment. Consequently, this lovely person goes away feeling like well, that church has racist people in it. Well, that's not realistic. It's not the whole congregation, and it's certainly not uh, that this person was particularly cruel, but this person was definitely ignorant mm -hmm. and inarticulate. So 
everybody's on a journey of sanctification because the most important thing you can do for your mental well-being and the people around you whom you love is to keep yourself healthy. You know, put your mask on first. That's become a real catchphrase lately. All of public speakers are using it. Why does the airline tell you to put your mask on before you try to help anybody else? Well, because if you don't, you probably won't be much good to anybody else. And so it's not an invitation to be selfish. It's an invitation to be uh, healthy. Or something I heard recently that really, really stuck with me was we use the phrase self-esteem too often. Self-esteem isn't a really healthy concept, but self-respect is. Respecting yourself, seeing yourself in the mirror with the same compassion and grace and mercy and hopefulness that you see other people with, having the same eyes for yourself that you have for others because of God's grace in you, because of the Holy Spirit in you, is a very healthy thing to do. Elevating yourself, not so much. Mm -hmm. So self-respect is a good thing. And then in the spirit of self-respect, you want to accomplish things that will make you stronger as a witness for Christ. More often than not, the people who are afraid to share their faith are people who aren't very confident in their faith. Hmm. So what's the answer? Grow your confidence. You know, be careful though, when you ask God to increase your faith, he will give you numerous opportunities. <laughs> I believe that. I've lived it. How are we doing on time, boss? I think we're doing pretty good. Okay. Um, lots of good things going on in this conversation. I think a good takeaway is to check your mental health, check your spiritual health, check your physical health. Mm -hmm. What's it like? How are you doing? And if it's, if it's not good, if it's not where you'd like it to be, prioritize that. Fill yeah. yourself up. Put on your mask so that you can put on someone else's mask. So that when you face someone who is not a Christian, someone who is perhaps hostile, you're equipped to carry that responsibility that we do carry as Christians to tell our story mm -hmm. and to scatter the seed, right? Yeah. So that they're not just attacking an empty vessel. Right. Right? Because that'll just make you feel worse and more exhausted. Um. So you said something on Sunday, and I wanted to go back to it, and then I think we'll leave it at that for, for today. But you spoke about the cross in the sermon, and it struck me how easily and how eloquently you just, I mean, you weren't reading from anything, you just said it. And I was like, wow, that really hit me to the point where I went back to it, and I listened to the whole sermon again, and I found it. And I wanted to quote it today mm. in our podcast to bring everybody back to this. Because I think this is the crux. I mean, this is it. It's about the cross, right? <laughs> By the way, the word crux refers to the place where the two pieces of wood and a cross intersect. No way. That's what it means. Wow. Amazing. 
<laughs> I didn't even try that. <laughs> That's good. But you said this right after um, you talked about like disarming people who are violently opposed to you. So we talked about that. And you said, quote, do you realize the cross looked like a victory to the enemy of God until it was revealed that the cross was God's act of grace? That was God's victory because it was the ultimate expression of grace. And it's the grace that gets us all into heaven if we'll just accept it. The enemy thought he won because he killed the son of God. And then the enemy was undone because it was the son of God who gave himself up as an act of grace for a bunch of people who don't even know him yet. He was thinking of you when he died on the cross. And this is what changed Paul. That's the gospel. Yeah. Thank you. I'm honored. I've thought about that quote because I made a little sermon short that went up on the internet Monday with that quote in it. And the only thing that I wish I'd said, but I haven't quite figured out how I could have said it, Mm -hmm. was, and then he rose again. Mm. Because he did. Yeah. I don't like leaving it that he sacrificed himself for us as if that's how it ends because Jesus himself said there are people who will lay down their life for others and they should be honored for that but they they're dead mm-hmm. Jesus laid down his life for us and he paid a cosmic price we can't even comprehend but then he came back and he's alive today and he's going to return Physically. So if I would have been able in that particular context, I would have added that. Just because that finishes the gospel story. Mm-hmm. And so important. Such an important ending. Cool. All right. With that, have a great week. Everybody, God bless you. Let us know what you think. We're glad to hear from you.